Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road at Agatha Christie's The Mystery of the Blue Train. Today, chapters 6 through 8. And now, chapter 6. Morel. Derek Kettering emerged from Van Alden's suite so precipitately that he collided with a lady passing across the corridor. He apologized, and she accepted his apologies with a smiling reassurance and passed on leaving him with a pleasant impression of a soothing personality and rather fine gray eyes. For all his nonchalance, his interview with his father-in-law had shaken him more than he cared to show. He had a solitary lunch, and after it, frowning to himself a little, he went round to the sumptuous flat that housed the lady known as Morel. A trim Frenchwoman received him with smiles. "'But enter then, monsieur. Madame reposes herself.' He was ushered into the long room with its eastern setting, which he knew so well. Morel was lying on the divan, supported by an incredible amount of cushions, all in varying shades of amber, to harmonize with the yellow ochre of her complexion. The dancer was a beautifully made woman, and if her face, beneath its mask of yellow, was in truth somewhat haggard, it had a bizarre charm of its own, and her orange lips smiled invitingly at Derek Kettering. He kissed her and flung himself into a chair. "'What have you been doing with yourself? "'Just got up, I suppose?' "'The orange mouth widened into a long smile. "'No,' said the dancer. "'I've been at work.' "'She flung out a long, pale hand towards the piano, "'which was littered with untidy music scores. "'Ambrose has been here. "'He's been playing me de nuapre.' "'Kettering nodded without paying much attention. "'He was profoundly interested in Claude Ambrose "'and the latter's operatic setting of Ibsen's Pierre Gint. So was Morel, for that matter, regarding it merely as a unique opportunity for her own presentation as Anitra. "'It is a marvelous dance,' she murmured. "'I shall put all the passion of the desert into it. I shall dance hung over with jewels. Ah! And by the way, mon ami, there is a pearl that I saw yesterday in Bond Street, a black pearl.' She paused, looking at him invitingly. "'My dear girl,' said Kettering, "'it's no use talking of black pearls to me. "'At the present minute, as far as I'm concerned, "'the fat is in the fire.' "'She was quick to respond to his tone. "'She sat up, her big black eyes widening. "'What did you say, Delic? "'What does happen?' "'My esteemed father-in-law,' said Kettering, "'is preparing to go off the deep end.' "'Eh?' "'In other words, he wants Ruth to divorce me.' "'How stupid,' said Morel. "'Why should she want to divorce you?' 
Derek Kettering grinned. "'Mainly because of you, Cherie,' he said. Morel shrugged her shoulders. "'That is foolish,' she observed in a matter-of-fact voice. "'Very foolish,' agreed Derek. "'What are you going to do about it?' demanded Morel. "'My dear girl, what can I do? On the one side, the man with unlimited money. On the other side, the man with unlimited debts. There is no question as to who will come out on top.' "'They are extraordinary.' "'These Americans,' commented Morel. "'It's not as though your wife were fond of you.' "'Well,' said Derek, "'what are we going to do about it?' "'She looked at him inquiringly. "'He came over and took both her hands in his. "'Are you going to stick to me?' "'What do you mean? After?' "'Yes,' said Kettering, "'after, when the creditors come down like wolves on the fold.' "'I'm damn fond of you, Morel. "'Are you going to let me down?' "'She pulled her hands away from him. "'You know I adore you, Derek.' "'He caught the note of evasion in her voice. "'So that's that, is it? "'The rats are leaving the sinking ship.' "'Ah, Derek.' "'Out with it,' he said violently. "'You will fling me over, is that it?' "'She shrugged her shoulders.' "'I am fond of you, mon ami. "'Indeed, I am fond of you. "'You are a very charming, un beau garçon. "'But ce n'est pas pratique.' "'You are a rich man's luxury, eh? "'Is that it?' "'If you like to put it that way.' "'She leaned back on the cushions, her head flung back. "'All the same, I am fond of you, Derrick.' He went over to the window and stood there some time looking out, with his back to her. Presently the dancer raised herself on her elbow and stared at him curiously. "'What are you thinking of, mon ami?' He grinned at her over his shoulder, a curious grin that made her vaguely uneasy. "'As it happened, I was thinking of a woman, my dear.' "'A woman?' Morel pounced on something that she could understand. "'You are thinking of some other woman, is that it?' "'Oh, you needn't worry. It's purely a fancy portrait. "'Portrait of a lady with grey eyes.' "'Morel said sharply, "'When did you meet her?' "'Derek Kettering laughed, and his laughter had a mocking, ironical sound. "'I ran into the lady in the corridor of the Savoy Hotel.' "'Well, what did she say?' "'As far as I can remember, I said, "'I beg your pardon,' and she said, "'It doesn't matter,' or words to that effect. "'And then?' persisted the dancer. "'Kettering shrugged his shoulders. "'And then? Nothing. "'That was the end of the incident.' "'I don't understand the word of what you're talking about,' "'declared the dancer. "'Portrait of a lady with grey eyes,' murmured Derek reflectively. "'Just as well. I'm never likely to meet her again.' "'Why?' "'She might bring me bad luck. Women seem to do that.' Morel slipped quickly from her couch and came across to him, laying one long, snake-like arm round his neck. "'You are foolish, Derrick,' she murmured. "'You are very foolish. You are beau garçon, and I adore you. 
but I am not made to be poor. No, decidedly, I am not made to be poor. Now listen to me. Everything is very simple. You must make it up with your wife. I'm afraid that's not going to be actually in the sphere of practical politics, said Derek dryly. How do you say? I do not understand. Van Alden, my dear, is not taking any. He is the kind of man who makes up his mind and sticks to it. I have heard of him, nodded the dancer. He is very rich, is he not? Almost the richest man in America. A few days ago, in Paris, he bought the most wonderful ruby in the world. Heart of Fire, it is called. Kettering did not answer. The dancer went on musingly. It is a wonderful stone, a stone that should belong to a woman like me. I love jewels, Derrick. They say something to me. Ah, to wear a ruby like heart of fire? She gave a little sigh and then became practical once more. You don't understand these things, Derrick. You are only a man. Van Alden will give these rubies to his daughter, I suppose. Is she his only child? Yes. Then, when he dies, she will inherit all his money. She will be a very rich woman. She's a rich woman already, said Kettering dryly. He settled a couple of millions on her at her marriage. A couple of millions? But that is immense. And if she died suddenly, eh? That would all come to you? As things stand at present, said Kettering slowly, it would. As far as I know, she has not made a will. Mon Dieu, said the dancer. If she were to die, what the solution that would be. There was a moment's pause, and then Derek Kettering laughed outright. <laughs> I like your simple, practical mind, Morel, but I'm afraid what you desire won't come to pass. My wife is an extremely healthy person. Eh bien, said Morel, there are accidents. He looked at her sharply, but did not answer. She went on. But you are right, mon ami. We must not dwell on possibilities. See now, my little Derrick, there must be no more talk of this divorce. Your wife must give up the idea. And if she won't? The dancer's eyes widened to slits. I think she will, my friend. She is one of those who would not like the publicity. There are one or two pretty stories that she would not like her friends to read in the newspapers. What do you mean? asked Kettering sharply. Morel laughed, her head thrown back. Parbleu! I mean the gentleman who calls himself the Comte de la Roche. I know all about him. I am Parisian, you remember. He was her lover before she married you, was he not? Kettering took her sharply by the shoulders. That is a damn lie, he said. And please remember that. After all, you're speaking of my wife. Morel was a little sobered. You are extraordinary, you English, she complained. All the same, I dare say that you may be right. The Americans are so cold, are they not? But you'll permit me to say, mon ami, that she was in love with him before she married you, 
and her father stepped in and set the comte about his business. And the little mademoiselle, she wept many tears, but she obeyed. Still, you must know as well as I do, Derrick, that it is a very different story now. She sees him nearly every day, and on the 14th she goes to Paris to meet him. How do you know all this? said Catherine. Me? I have friends in Paris, my dear Derrick, who know the Comte intimately. It is all arranged. She is going to the Riviera, so she says, but in reality the Comte meets her in Paris, and who knows? Yes, yes, you can take my word for it. It is all arranged. Derrick Catherine stood motionless. You see, purred the dancer, if you are clever, you have her in the hollow of your hand. You can make things very awkward for her. Oh, for God's sake, be quiet, cried Catherine. Shut your cursed mouth. Morel flung herself down again on the divan with a laugh. Kettering caught up his hat and coat and left the flat, banging the door violently. And still the dancer sat on the divan and laughed softly to herself. She was not displeased with her work. We'll return with Chapter 7, right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 7, Letters. Mrs. Samuel Harfield presents her compliments to Miss Catherine Gray and wishes to point out that under the circumstances Miss Gray may not be aware. Mrs. Harfield, having written so far fluently, came to a dead stop, held up by what has proved an insuperable difficulty. To many other people, namely, the difficulty of expressing oneself fluently in the third person. After a minute or two of hesitation, Mrs. Harfield tore up the sheet of notepaper and started afresh. Dear Miss Gray, whilst fully appreciating the adequate way you discharged your duties to my cousin Emma, whose recent death has indeed been a severe blow to us all, I cannot but feel... Again Mrs. Harfield came to a stop. Once more the letter was consigned to the waste paper basket. Once more the letter was consigned to the waste paper basket. It was not until four false starts had been made that Mrs. Hartfield at last produced an epistle that satisfied her. It was duly sealed and stamped and addressed to Miss Catherine Gray, Little Crampton, St. Mary Mead, Kent, and it lay beside that lady's plate on the following morning at breakfast time in company with a more important-looking communication in a long blue envelope. Catherine Gray opened Mrs. Hartfield's letter first. The finished production ran as follows. Dear Miss Gray, my husband and I wish to express our thanks to you for your services to my poor cousin Emma. Her death has been a great blow to us, though we were, of course, aware that her mind had been failing for some time past. I understand that her latter, testamentary dispositions have been of a most peculiar character, and they would not hold good, of course, in any court of law. I have no doubt that, with your usual good sense, you have already realized this fact. If these matters can be arranged privately, it is always so much better, my husband says. We shall be pleased to recommend you most highly for a similar post and hope that you will also accept a small present. Believe me, dear Miss Gray, yours cordially, Mary Ann Harfield. Catherine Gray read the letter through, smiled a little, 
and read it a second time. Her face, as she laid the letter down after the second reading, was distinctly amused. Then she took up the second letter. After one brief perusal, she laid it down and stared very straight in front of her. This time she did not smile. Indeed, it would have been hard for anyone watching her to guess what emotions lay behind that quiet, reflective gaze. Catherine Gray was thirty-three. She came of good family, but her father had lost all his money, and Catherine had had to work for her living from an early age. She had been just twenty-three when she had come to old Mrs. Hartfield as a companion. It was generally recognized that old Mrs. Hartfield was difficult. Companions came and went with startling rapidity. They arrived full of hope, and they usually left in tears. But from the moment Catherine Gray set foot in Little Crampton, ten years ago, perfect peace had reigned. No one knows how these things came about. Snake charmers, they say, are born, not made. Catherine Gray was born with the power of managing old ladies, dogs, and small boys, and she did it without any apparent sense of strain. At twenty-three she had been a quiet girl with beautiful eyes. At thirty-three she was a quiet woman, with those same gray eyes, shining steadily out on the world with a kind of happy serenity that nothing could shake. Moreover, she had been born with, and still possessed, a sense of humor. As she sat at the breakfast table, staring in front of her, there was a ring at the bell, accompanied by a very energetic rat-a-tat-tat at the knocker. In another minute the little maid-servant opened the door and announced rather breathlessly, "'Dr. Harrison!' The big, middle-aged doctor came buzzing in with the energy and breeziness that had been foreshadowed by his onslaught on the knocker. "'Good morning, Miss Gray.' "'Good morning, Dr. Harrison.' "'I dropped in early,' began the doctor, "'in case you should have heard from one of those Hartfield cousins. "'Mrs. Samuel, she calls herself. "'A perfectly poisonous person.' Without a word, Catherine picked up Mrs. Hartfield's letter from the table and gave it to him. With a good deal of amusement she watched his perusal of it, the drawing together of the bushy eyebrows, the snorts and grunts of violent disapproval. He dashed it down again on the table. "'Perfectly monstrous,' he fumed. "'Don't you let it worry you, my dear. They're talking through their hat. Mrs. Harfield's intellect was as good as yours or mine, and you won't get anyone to say the contrary. They wouldn't have a leg to stand upon, and they know it.' "'All that talk of taking it into court is pure bluff. "'Hence this attempt to get round you in a hole-and-corner way. "'And look here, my dear. "'Don't let them get round you with soft soap, either. "'Don't get fancying it's your duty to hand over the cash "'or any tomfoolery of conscientious scruples.' "'I'm afraid it hasn't occurred to me to have scruples,' said Catherine. "'All these people are distant relatives of Mrs. Harfield's husband, "'and they never came near her.' "'or took any notice of her in her lifetime. "'You're a sensible woman,' said the doctor. "'I know, none better, "'that you've had a hard life of it for the last ten years. "'You're fully entitled to enjoy the old lady's savings, "'such as they were.' "'Catherine smiled thoughtfully. "'Such as they were,' she repeated. "'You no idea of the amount, doctor?' "'Well enough to bring in five hundred a year or so, I suppose.' Catherine nodded. "'That's what I thought,' she said. "'Now read this.' She handed him the letter she had taken from the long blue envelope. 
the doctor read and uttered an exclamation of utter astonishment. Impossible, he muttered. Impossible. She was one of the original shareholders in Mortolds. Forty years ago, she must have had an income of eight or ten thousand a year. She has never, I'm sure, spent more than four hundred a year. She was always terribly careful about money. I always believed that she was obliged to be careful about every penny. And all the time the income has accumulated at compound interest. My dear, you're going to be a very wealthy woman. Catherine Gray nodded. She spoke in a detached, impersonal tone, as though she were looking at the situation from outside. Well, said the doctor, preparing to depart, you have all my congratulations. He flicked Mrs. Samuel Hartfield's letter with his thumb. Don't worry about that woman and her odious letter. It really isn't an odious letter, said Mrs. Gray tolerantly. Under the circumstances, I think it's really quite a natural thing to do. I have the gravest suspicions of you sometimes, said the doctor. Why? The things that you find perfectly natural. Catherine Gray laughed. Dr. Harrison retailed the great news to his wife at lunchtime. She was very excited about it. Fancy old Mrs. Hartfield with all that money. I'm glad she left it to Catherine Gray. That girl's a saint. The doctor made a wry face. Saints, I always imagine, must have been difficult people. Catherine Gray is too human for a saint. She's a saint with a sense of humor, said the doctor's wife, twinkling. And, though I don't suppose you've ever noticed the fact, she's extremely good-looking. Catherine Gray? The doctor was honestly surprised. She's got very nice eyes, I know. Oh, you men! cried his wife, blind as bats. Catherine's got all the makings of a beauty in her. All she wants is clothes. Clothes? What's wrong with her clothes? She always looks very nice. Mrs. Harrison gave an exasperated sigh, and the doctor rose preparatory to starting on his rounds. You might look in on her, Polly, he suggested. I'm going to, said Mrs. Harrison promptly. She made her call about three o'clock. "'My dear, I'm so glad,' she said warmly, as she squeezed Catherine's hand. "'And everyone in the village will be glad, too.' "'It's very nice of you to come and tell me,' said Catherine. "'I hoped you would come, because I wanted to ask about Johnny.' "'Oh, Johnny, well—' Johnny was Mrs. Harrison's youngest son. In another minute she was off, retailing a long history in which Johnny's adenoids and tonsils bulked largely. Catherine listened sympathetically. Habits die hard. Listening had been her portion for ten years now. My dear, I wonder if I ever told you about that naval ball at Portsmouth. When Lord Charles admired my gown? And composedly, kindly, Catherine would reply, I rather think you have, Mrs. Harfield, but I've forgotten about it. "'Won't you tell it to me again?' "'And then the old lady would start off full swing "'with numerous details, "'and half of Catherine's mind would be listening, "'saying the right things mechanically "'when the old lady paused. "'Now, with that same curious feeling of duality "'to which she was accustomed, "'she listened to Mrs. Harrison. "'At the end of half an hour, "'the latter recalled herself suddenly. 
"'I've been talking about myself all this time,' she exclaimed, "'and I came here to talk about you and your plans. "'I don't know that I've got any yet.' "'My dear, you're not going to stay on here.' "'Catherine smiled at the horror in the other's tone. "'No, I think I want to travel. "'I've never seen much of the world, you know.' "'I should think not.' "'It must have been an awful life for you "'cooped up here all these years.' "'I don't know,' said Catherine. "'It gave me a lot of freedom.' "'She caught the other's gasp "'and reddened a little. "'It must sound foolish, my saying that. "'Of course, I hadn't much freedom "'in the downright physical sense.' "'I should think not,' breathed Mrs. Harrison, "'remembering that Catherine had seldom had "'that useful thing as a day off.' "'But, in a way, being tied physically gives you lots of scope mentally. "'You're always free to think. "'I've had a lovely feeling always of mental freedom.' "'Mrs. Harrison shook her head. "'I can't understand that. "'Oh, you would if you'd been in my place. "'But all the same, I feel I want a change. "'I want—well, I want things to happen. "'Oh, not to me. "'I don't mean that.' "'but to be in the midst of things, exciting things, "'even if I'm the only looker-on. "'You know, things don't happen in St. Mary Mead.' "'They don't indeed,' said Mrs. Harrison, with fervor. "'I shall go to London first, said Catherine. "'I have to see the solicitors anyway. "'After that, I shall go abroad, I think.' "'Very nice. "'But, of course, first of all... "'Yes?' "'I must get some clothes.' "'Exactly what I said to Arthur this morning,' cried the doctor's wife. "'You know, Catherine, you could look positively beautiful if you tried.' Miss Gray laughed unaffectedly. "'Oh, I don't think you could ever make a beauty out of me,' she said sincerely. "'But I shall enjoy having some really good clothes. "'I'm afraid of talking about myself an awful lot.' Mrs. Harrison looked at her shrewdly. "'It must be quite a novel experience for you,' she said dryly. "'Catherine went to say good-bye to old Miss Viner before leaving the village. "'Miss Viner was two years older than Mrs. Hartfield, "'and her mind was mainly taken up with her own success "'in outliving her dead friend. "'You wouldn't have thought I'd outlasted Jane Hartfield, would you?' "'She demanded triumphantly of Catherine. "'We were at school together, she and I, and here we are, she taken?' "'and I left. "'Who would have thought it? "'You've always eaten brown bread for supper, haven't you?' "'murmured Catherine mechanically. "'Fancy you remembering that, my dear. "'Yes, if Jane Hardfield had had a slice of brown bread every evening "'and taken a little stimulant with her meals, "'she might be here today.' "'The old lady paused, nodding her head triumphantly, "'then added in sudden remembrance, "'And so you've come into a lot of money, I hear.' "'Well, well, take care of it. "'And you're going up to London to have a good time?' "'I don't think you'll get married, though, my dear, "'because you won't. "'You're not the kind to attract the men. "'And besides, you're getting on. "'How old are you now?' Thirty-three, Catherine told her. "'Well,' remarked Miss Viner doubtfully, "'that's not so very bad. "'You've lost your first freshness, of course.' "'I'm afraid so.' "'said Catherine, much entertained. "'But you're a very nice girl,' said Miss Viner kindly, 
"'and I'm sure there's many a man might do worse than take you for a wife "'instead of one of those liberty gibbets running around nowadays "'showing more of their legs than the Creator ever intended them to. "'Well, good-bye, my dear, and I hope you enjoy yourself. "'But things are seldom what they seem in this life.' "'Heartened by these prophecies, Catherine took her departure. "'Half of the village came to see her off at the station, "'including the little maid of all work, Alice, "'who brought a stiff, wired nosegay, "'and cried openly. "'There ain't a many like her,' sobbed Alice, "'when the train had finally departed. "'I'm sure when Charlie went back on me "'with that girl from the dairy, "'nobody could have been kinder than Miss Gray was, "'and no particular about the brasses and the dust. "'She was always one to notice "'when you give a thing an extra rub. "'Cut myself in little pieces for her, I would, any day. "'A real lady, that's what I call her.' "'Such was Catherine's departure.' From St. Mary Mead. Chapter 8. Lady Tamplin Writes a Letter. Well, said Lady Tamplin, well. She laid down the Continental Daily Mail and stared out across the blue waters of the Mediterranean. A branch of golden mimosa hanging just above her head made an effective frame for a very charming picture. A golden-haired, blue-eyed lady in a very becoming negligee. That the golden hair owed something to art, as did the pink and white complexion, was undeniable. But the blue of the eyes was nature's gift, and at forty-four Lady Tamplin could still rank as a beauty. Charming as she looked, Lady Tamplin was, for once, not thinking of herself. That is to say, she was not thinking of her appearance. She was intent on graver matters. Lady Tamplin was a well-known figure on the Riviera, and her parties at the Villa Marguerite were justly celebrated. She was a woman of considerable experience, and had had four husbands. The first had been merely an indiscretion, and so was seldom referred to by the lady. He had had the good sense to die with commendable promptitude, and his widow thereupon espoused a rich manufacturer of buttons. He too had departed for another sphere after three years of married life, it was said, after a congenial evening with some good companions. After him came Viscount Tamplin, who had placed Rosalie securely on those heights where she wished to tread. She had retained her title when she married for a fourth time. This fourth venture had been undertaken for pure pleasure. Mr. Charles Evans, an extremely good-looking young man at twenty-seven, with delightful manners, a keen love of sport, and an appreciation of this world's goods, had no money of his own whatsoever. Lady Tamplin was very pleased and satisfied with life generally, but she had occasional faint preoccupations about money. The button manufacturer had left his widow a considerable fortune, but, as Lady Tamplin was wont to say, what with one thing and another, one thing being the depreciation of stocks owing to the war, and the other the extravagances of the late Lord Tamplin. She was still comfortably off, but to be merely comfortably off is hardly satisfactory to one of Rosalie Tamplin's temperament. So, on this particular January morning, she opened her blue eyes extremely wide as she read a certain item of news and uttered that non-committal monosyllable, Well. The only other occupant of the balcony was her daughter, the Honorable Lennox Tamplin. A daughter such as Lennox was a sad thorn in Lady Tamplin's side, a girl with no kind of tact, who actually looked older than her age, and whose peculiar sidonic form of humor was, to say the least of it, uncomfortable. 
"'Darling,' said Lady Champlin, "'just fancy.' "'What is it?' Lady Champlin picked up the Daily Mail, handed it to her daughter, and indicated with an agitated forefinger the paragraph of interest. Lennox read it without any of the signs of agitation shown by her mother. She handed back the paper. "'What about it?' she asked. "'It is the sort of thing that is always happening.' "'Cheese-pairing old women are always dying in villages "'and leaving fortunes of millions to their humble companions.' "'Yes, dear, I know,' said her mother, "'and I dare say the fortune is not anything like as large as they say it is. "'Newspapers are so inaccurate. "'But even if you cut it down by half—' "'Well,' said Lennox, "'it has not been left to us.' "'Not exactly, dear,' said Lady Tamplin. "'But this girl, this Catherine Gray— "'is actually a cousin of mine, "'one of the Worcestershire Greys, "'the Edgeworth lot, "'my very own cousin.' "'Fancy!' "'Aha!' said Lennox. "'And I was wondering,' said her mother. "'What there was in it for us,' "'finished Lennox, "'with that sideways smile "'that her mother always found difficult to understand. "'Oh, darling,' said Lady Tamplin, "'on a faint note of reproach, it was very faint, because Rosalie Tamplin was used to her daughter's outspokenness and to what she called Lennox's uncomfortable way of putting things. "'I was wondering,' said Lady Tamplin, again drawing her artistically penciled brows together, "'whether—' "'Oh, good morning, Chubby. Are you going to play tennis? How nice!' Chubby, thus addressed, smiled kindly at her, remarked perfunctorily, "'How topping you look in that peach-colored thing!' "'And drifted past them and down the steps. "'The dear thing,' said Lady Tamplin, "'looking affectionately after her husband. "'Let me see. What was I saying? Ah!' "'She switched her mind back to business once more. "'I was wondering. "'Oh, for God's sake, get on with it. "'That's the third time you've said that. "'Well, dear,' said Lady Tamplin, I was thinking that it would be very nice if I wrote to dear Catherine and suggested that she pay us a little visit out here. Naturally, she's quite out of touch with society. It would be nicer for her to be launched by one of her own people, an advantage for her and an advantage for us. So how much do you think you'd get her to cough up? asked Lennox. Her mother looked at her reproachfully and murmured, We should have to come to some... "'Financial arrangement, of course. "'What with one thing and another. "'The war. "'Your poor father.' "'And Chubby now,' said Lennox. "'He's an expensive luxury, if you like.' "'She was as nice a girl as I remember her,' murmured Lady Tamplin, "'pursuing her own line of thought. "'Quiet, never wanted to shove herself forward. "'Not a beauty, and never a man-hunter.' "'She will leave Chubby alone, then?' "'said Lennox. "'Lady Tamplin looked at her in protest. "'Chubby would never!' she began. "'No,' said Lennox. "'I don't believe he would. "'He knows a jolly sight too well "'which way his bread is buttered. "'Darling,' said Lady Tamplin, "'you have such a coarse way of putting things.' "'Sorry,' said Lennox. "'Lady Tamplin gathered up the Daily Mail "'and her negligee, a vanity bag, and various odd letters. "'I shall write to dear Catherine at once,' she said, 
a reminder of the dear old days at Edgeworth. She went into the house, a light of purpose shining in her eyes. Unlike Mrs. Samuel Harfield, correspondence flowed easily from her pen. She covered four sheets without pause or effort, and on rereading it found no occasion to alter a word. Catherine received it on the morning of her arrival in London. Whether she read between the lines of it or not is another matter. She put it in her handbag and started out to keep the appointment she had made with Mrs. Hartfield's lawyers. The firm was an old established one in Lincoln's Inn Fields, and after a few minutes' delay, Catherine was shown into the presence of a senior partner, a kindly, elderly man with shrewd blue eyes and a fatherly manner. They discussed Mrs. Hartfield's will and various legal matters for some minutes. Then Catherine handed the lawyer Mrs. Samuel's letter. "'I'd better show you this, I suppose,' she said, "'though it is really rather ridiculous.' He read it with a slight smile. "'Rather a crude attempt, Miss Gray. I need hardly tell you, I suppose, that these people have no claim of any kind upon the estate, and if they endeavor to contest the will, no court will uphold them.' "'I thought as much.' "'Human nature is not always very wise. "'In Mrs. Samuel Harfield's place, "'I should have been more inclined "'to make an appeal to your generosity. "'That is one of the things "'I wanted to speak to you about. "'I should like a certain sum "'to go to these people. "'There is no obligation. "'I know that. "'And they will not take it "'in the spirit it's meant. "'They will probably regard it "'as an attempt to pay them off, "'although they will not refuse it "'on that account.' "'I can see that, and it can't be helped. "'I will advise you, Miss Gray, to put that idea out of your head.' "'Catherine shook her head. "'You are quite right, I know, but I should like it done all the same. "'They will grab at the money and abuse you all the more afterwards.' "'Well,' said Catherine, "'let them if they like. "'We all have our own ways of enjoying ourselves. "'They were, after all, Mrs. Harfield's only relatives, and though they despised her as a poor relation and paid no attention to her when she was alive, it seems to me unfair that they should be cut off with nothing. She carried her point, though the lawyer was still unwilling, and she presently went out into the streets of London with a comfortable assurance that she could spend the money freely and make what plans she liked for the future. Her first action was to visit the establishment of a famous dressmaker. A slim, elderly Frenchwoman, rather like the dreaming duchess, received her, and Catherine spoke with a certain naivete. "'I want, if I may, to put myself in your hands. I have been very poor all my life, and know nothing about clothes, but now I have come into some money, and want to look really well-dressed.' The Frenchwoman was charmed. She had an artist's temperament, which had been soured earlier in the morning by a visit from an Argentine meat-queen, who had insisted on having those models least suited to her flamboyant type of beauty. She scrutinized Catherine with keen, clever eyes. "'Yes, yes, it will be a pleasure. Mademoiselle is a very good figure. For her the simple lines will be best. She is also très anglaise. Some people would offend them if I said that. But Mademoiselle, no, une belle anglaise. There is no style more delightful.' The demeanor of a dreaming duchess was suddenly put off. She screamed out diction to various mannequins. It was a charming morning. Marcel, Clotilde, Virginie, bored and scornful, 
passed slowly round, squirming and wiggling in the time-honored fashion of mannequins. The Duchess stood by Catherine and made entries in a small notebook. "'An excellent choice, mademoiselle. Mademoiselle has great gout. Yes, indeed.' What was there in these words that came back to Catherine with a faint feeling of sadness after she had left the dressmaking establishment? These years of servitude in St. Mary Mead, and all the while life passing by. I am an idiot, said Catherine. I am an idiot. What do I want? Why, I was more contented a month ago than I am now. She drew out from her handbag the letter she had received that morning from Lady Tamplin. Catherine was no fool. She understood the nuances of that letter as well as anybody, and the reason of Lady Tamplin's sudden show of affection towards a long-forgotten cousin was not lost upon her. It was for profit and not for pleasure that Lady Tamplin was so anxious for the company of her dear cousin. Well, why not? There would be profit on both sides. "'I will go,' said Catherine. She was walking down Piccadilly at the moment, "'and turned into Cook's to clinch the matter then and there. "'She had to wait for a few minutes. "'The man with whom the clerk was engaged "'was also going to the Riviera. "'Everyone, she felt, was going. "'Well, for the first time in her life, "'she too would be doing what everybody did. "'The man in front of her turned abruptly, "'and she stepped into his place. "'She made her demand to the clerk, "'but at the same time half of her mind was busy with something else.' "'That man's face. "'In some vague way it was familiar to her. "'Where had she seen him before? "'Suddenly she remembered. "'It was in the Savoy, outside her room, that morning. "'She had collided with him in the passage. "'Rather an odd coincidence "'that she should run into him twice in a day. "'She glanced over her shoulder, "'rendered uneasy by something. "'She knew not what. "'The man was standing in the doorway looking back at her, a cold shiver passed over Catherine. She had a haunting sense of tragedy, of doom impending. Then she shook the impression from her with her usual good sense and turned her whole attention to what the clerk was saying. Thus ends Chapter 8. Next week Sunday, we begin with Chapter 9. Thank you for joining us for The Mystery of the Blue Train, Poirot Mystery, from Agatha Christie. If you're enjoying our story, please do stop a moment send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. And by the way, we did have a nice review just come through for the Moonstone. North London Listener, 1001 Stories for the Road. Five stars. I read the Moonstone many years ago, so I know the ending, but that seems to make it even more enjoyable to listen to the twists and turns and recognize the clues dropped so skillfully by the author. I love the ending of the Moonstone, and I wonder whether Wilkie Collins was considered very advanced for his times to recognize that the rightful place for the Moonstone Diamond to end up at the close of the book was in India, in the hands of the Hindu gods, rather than sparkling in Rachel Verinder's Decolletage. That one from North London fan, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And yes, it really was a terrific ending, when the sacred Moonstone was returned to its people. Thanks so much. For sending us this review, we appreciate it. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. And we'll be back next Sunday at 12 noon Eastern. See you then.